arts organization whose mission is to bring diverse films, provide education of the art and history of cinema, and encourage filmmaking in northeastern Maine. More information at rivercitycinema.com or 358-9396. I'm Fritz Homans, and meet me every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4 at the Blues Station. We'll be departing on track 145 for a new destination every week, where we'll journey across the country in search of the best toe-tapping blues music around that's guaranteed to make your soul sing. The Blues Station, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 4, here on WERU 89.9 FM, and streaming live at WERU.org. Blues to make you feel good. All aboard for the Blues Station. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and Opera House Arts at the Stonington Opera House with a schedule of concerts, theater, live family entertainment, and first-run movies. Tickets and information at operahousearts.org. Announcing a new show on WERU called Rhyme the Reason. Tuesdays, 10 to midnight, right after Southern Wind. Diverse Freeform Radio. I hope you can make it. Support for WERU comes from Easterly Wine of Belfast, Maine, an independent enterprise that supports free speech, democracy, and independent media. It's How 13 can people seconds after uh, 4 o'clock, and it's time for Maine Currents. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture for Tuesday, June 27, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. In our first half hour today, we're live and we have several guests joining us to talk about Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. And coming up in the second half hour, Matt Murphy will be talking with trainer Peggy Smith about nonviolent communication. So be sure to stick around for that later in the show. My guests in the studio today are recent visitors to Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. Christina Perkins is a local resident who has hiked, I'm going to call it KWW for most of the show, with friends and her dog Rye and plans to return this summer. Don Duncan is a photographer from southern mid-coast area who's just returning from a trip. I mean, literally just returning from a trip to KWW. He's on his way back now, and he's visited and, and done photography in the area in the past. And Roger Merchant is a photographer who has been exploring, fishing, canoeing, hiking, and taking photos in the area since the 60s when he was working as a forester. Welcome to all of you. Hi. Hi. Hi Glad to have you here. Thank you. And if you'd like a visual while you listen, you can check out some of Roger Merchant's photography on the WERU Facebook page. There's a post about this, and later on we'll also um, be adding some by Don Duncan as well. But right now we have a few photos up there that Roger Merchant contributed. Joining us by phone, we have Lucas St. Clair. Lucas is a member of the family that donated the land for the National Monument and an endow- endowment to support it. He's also a spokesperson and I came up with a different title for you uh, uh, earlier today, Lucas. I hope you like it. A listens person uh, who's traveled around the state for the past few years listening to the hopes and concerns of area residents as his family worked on setting up the donation. Welcome, Lucas. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I know you've been here before. I should say welcome back. 
Uh, Lucas, we're going to start off with you, if we can. If you could give us an overview, uh, and especially for any listeners who may not be from the area, of what Katahdin Woods and Waters, is, the National Monument, is, where it's located, and the current status of the National Monument designation. Sure. So it's uh, so if you're coming into Maine, it's it's straight north on on Interstate 95 to um, the Patton exit, um, which is just about 20 miles north of, of the Millinocket Medway exit. Um, and that's the, the most straightaway um, way to get into the, the National Monument. It's uh, just to the east of the towns of Patton and Sherman and Stacyville, or pardon me, just to the west of those three towns, and just to the east uh, and shares a border with Baxter State Park. So it's just a little bit north of, of the middle of the state of Maine. And uh, really it celebrates the, the and and protects the three three stream or the two streams in one river that that flow through it the east branch of the Penobscot which is the headwaters of the Penobscot River watershed which is the largest watershed in Maine drains about three quarters of the state and then two significant tributaries to the east branch of the Penobscot the Wasatcook stream and the Savoia stream and in between all of those rivers are a, a, an extensive um, intact um, northern forest with silver maple floodplains and uh, high alpine uh, mountains and incredible views of in, into Baxter State Park and um, Mount Katahdin and the various other peaks in, in the range. And you know, it's for, for folks that haven't grown up in Maine and, and, and have been around this expanse of green, it's a pretty remarkable thing to see. Um, and the status is, is that it's, it's open, and we're having incredible visitation already. You know, I was just, you know, look, it was great to see on Facebook and, you know, social media, all of the folks that are going up and visiting and posting, posting photo, photos of their experiences and, and, and commenting about what a great time they're having. It's fun to, to actually have the first summer season underway now. Um, and there's a lot of infrastructure being, being added, a lot of interpretation being done. There's a friends group, uh, friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters, that is formed, and and is, and they're doing various projects to enhance and support the monument. So the the status is is, is open, and and um, we're, the the Park Service is doing a great job welcoming visitors this summer. And is there any news on the uh, effort by Maine's governor to get the status as a national monument revoked? Is there any news on that front? No, not really. I mean, it, there's there's no legal path forward for them to, to remove the, the land from the National Park Service and, and um, to, to, to take it away from the Park Service and do anything other than turn it into a national park. Um, while the, the governor wasn't, um, hasn't been an advocate for this place and, and, and spoke a little bit disparagingly about what the area has to offer, um, it was clear when the Secretary of Interior came that he, he actually came to visit and saw the, the real beauty of the landscape and, and had a great opportunity to meet dozens and dozens of people from elected officials to business owners and seeing how much they appreciate having this as their, their back in their backyard. Um, so, you know, while the governor hasn't taken the time to come up and visit, uh, he, he just doesn't, you know, he doesn't know what it's like. So. All right. Well, we're going to move on to some people who do know as well as you, well, not as well as you do, in addition to what you know. Some other folks who uh, have visited recently, but feel free to jump in here at any time. I'm going to go around the table and ask each of these folks to talk about their most recent visits and 
if they're mentioning any areas that you want to jump in, Lucas, and say some more about, go ahead and do that. And then in a few minutes, we'll open the phone lines and let other listeners call in if they have any questions for any of you all or any comments they'd like to make. Who wants to go first and talk about their most recent visit to Katahdin Woods and Waters? I guess I can start. All right, this is Don Duncan. Um, I was just there two hours ago, (laughs) three hours ago. This is breaking news. (laughs) (laughs) And I drove probably as quickly as I could, but as safely as I could, 90 miles an hour on Route 95 south (laughs) from Sherman or Shen Pond. I'm not even sure where I was. Lost in the woods in a big four-wheel drive SUV that I rented. And originally I rented a super compact, but they upgraded me five times. Wow. So you'd been up there before. How did you find the place compared to you'd been in the area before? Well, I actually haven't been there since 1996. And a lot of things happened in my life around then. So I thought I'd go back today, yesterday, and look at it now that it's a national monument and be able to report that it's just absolutely gorgeous. And I feel like it belongs to me in part. Being protected by the federal government is a good thing, in my opinion. And it's beautiful. You think you'll go back? Oh, I'm, I may turn around and go back up tonight. <laughs> I have all the camping equipment I need, and I bought Amish strawberries and it's beautiful there are amish carts on the highways oh really on the way and i stopped at an amish house yesterday and bought a gallon of maple syrup that they made in april and a quart of strawberries and a bunch of firewood so contributing to the local economy absolutely (laughs) roger christina either of you want to talk about your most recent trip i'll give it a go all right this is roger merchant so as uh, you mentioned earlier, I've been recreating and hiking and canoeing in this region since uh, 1967 uh, when I worked up in that area as a forester. I've had a lot of experiences, a lot of memories, a lot of good times. And in this last couple of weeks, I've actually been up in the Wasada Cook Valley and I've had an interest in forest history and heritage. And as solitudinous and quiet and remote such that all you hear is the stream bubbling by or the wind in the pines. It's like that. It's a quiet place that's very, I find, very restful. But I've been to places like Dacey Dam, um, a dam site uh, when they had log drives coming down. It was Satacook Stream all the way back into the uh, late 1800s when they harvested pine up in Baxter State Park around Russell Pond. It was all driven down the Wasatacook which was a difficult piece of work back in the day. So I've been investigating some sites that I learned about and trying to find remains of dams or buildings or this or that. And I have the same kind of reaction now that I had the first time I saw it from the Sherman Lumber Bridge across the Wasatacook Stream back in 1967. And it just left me ah, kind of awed and at peace. Mm. Really a nice place. I really appreciate what what you've done, Lucas, and in, 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 in your family has done in, in bringing this forward into a national monument. It's quite a treasure for both people in this state and the country. I can certainly concur with that. Christine. Well, thanks for saying that. 
Christina is nodding too. Yes, definitely. Thank you, Lucas, and your family. Yes. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I, I, this, this has been a stressful pro- process at times, and um, being in that landscape is always what has given me the energy and motivation to keep working. It really is It's just such a, a calming and centering place, and um, it's so nice to know that it's there. That's really a testimony because when I coined that term listens person instead of spokesperson, I really was thinking of you in mind of how you have been out and I'm watching you just go and listen to what people have to say and keep calm when the phrase gift horse, looking a gift horse in the mouth came to mind so many times. Uh, Christina, you've recently been there too. Yes, we were there. I think it's been about three weeks now, but um, we headed up last year right after it opened. We couldn't wait. We're hiking addicts. And, um, and I appreciate the opportunity to bring Rye. I can't bring her into Baxter, so having the monument is a chance for dog owners, responsible dog owners with leash dogs, to go up and do some hiking. So last year we stayed at Sewell House. We did this year, too. It's a, a yoga retreat in Island Falls. And um, they also provide their guests with information about the monument. And when we were there last year, there was a couple from Florida who had read about it in the New York Times. And so they changed their plans for the first day and connected with us. And we all went, a large group of us. And um, we went again this year. And we had lots of fun. And we can't wait to go back. Great. Well, it was really easy. I can say when I just put out a note a couple of weeks ago on one of the Facebook pages about Katahdin Woods and Water saying, I just want some people who've been there to come and talk about their experiences. And I didn't say positive or negative. You know, if there have been people who wanted to come and say the black flies are terrible and I hate the Maine woods, you know, I could have accidentally, I didn't even when I booked these folks, ask them whether they'd had a positive or negative experience. I just really wanted to hear. But looking online, you can see that there are just a lot of people who've made the trip. I've not so far, so... It's, uh, it's great to hear what it's like. I want to open the phone lines at this point. The number, if you have a question or a comment or a story to tell about the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument area, even if you've been there before it was designated, give us a call. The number is 469-0500. We're expecting and hoping to hear from some folks uh, uh, locally who ha- are planning a caravan up and Uh, You may be able to connect with them to add a car to that caravan here sometime in the next couple of days. And uh, Don Duncan, you wanted to say something about sunset. Yes, last night I went out. I stayed in a motel last night in Sherman. And I went out on Route 11, which is, I think, the official entrance to the National Monument. And it was about 8 o'clock at night last night. And I have a fancy new... It's actually a used old Nikon that takes my old 35-millimeter Nikon lenses. I have a 20-millimeter wide-angle lens. Set up a heavy tripod and watch the sunset from 8 o'clock till 10 o'clock last night. And the crescent moon was setting above Mount Katahdin as the sun dimmed in a circle and clouds were piling by. And it was just amazing. Yeah. Like if you if that's one of the photos that you want to send us a copy of and let us know on the Facebook page, we'd love to see I'd, that. I'd like to put some of the, the photos right. I just took and some that I took in the 80s and 90s when I was doing large format black and white 4x5 negatives. 
Right. Christina. Yeah, can I just say something? I just thought of it. Um, I've had a lot of uh, questions from people wanting to go and not knowing where to go. And I just want to say that the signs and the trail markers and the sign postings were absolutely fabulous. So once you get into the monument. Yes. The signs yes. and the status of the signs is the governor still not letting the, the monument direction signs on the highway be posted? Is that the case? Lucas? It is the case, yeah. We, um, we're we not able to put up signs on um, that the DOT would have jurisdiction over. Um, but once you do get into the monument, there has been a lot of activity by the Park Service and, and many, many volunteers that have been um, cutting and routering and painting and, and then hanging signs. And I, I know there's a well over 100 on, on just the loop road. And I want to let the tourists know, people who are visitors to this area, if you're seeing signs, there's even one in Bucksport at the bridge telling you, like, what direction, and maybe Christina put it there because she's smiling kind of, like, no, guiltily. <laughs> uh, there's, there have been people all over the state who are putting up signs from various places saying uh, how many miles to go and what direction to go to get to the um, National Monument. So if you're seeing those, those have been put up by Mainers who want to make sure that you know how to get there. There's probably a good... Uh, what website can people go to if they want to uh, find good information about what they can do in the park? Maintrailfinder.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's a great things. one. Uh, you also can go to nps.gov and get uh, maps and, and some real-time updates about where if, if there's roads closing. This is and it's more helpful in the in the shoulder seasons when there may be snow or or during the mud season when some of the roads do close. And you can also go to the Friends of Katahdin Woods and Waters dot uh, org, which is the friends group, and there's PDF maps that are you're able to download that are the most detailed maps of the monument and give you an idea of of what's out there and what's to see. All right, I think we've got a, a phone call coming in. We're going to take a couple of calls here, uh, and the number if you want to get through later when the line's not busy because now we've got both tied up is four six nine zero five hundred. We're just doing this segment for the first half hour, so don't wait too long. And oh, we've got Kathy with us. I believe uh, this is Kathy Johnson. Yes, it is. All right, great. This is Kathy Johnson, uh, who we were planning to hear from. She is the staff, senior staff attorney and forest and wildlife project manager, director for the Natural Resources Council of Maine. They're one of the largest environmental groups in the area. And I asked her to call in. Last week, they sent around a mailing to their membership saying, don't be complacent. There were there sort of hints that the Interior Secretary was pleased with his visit to Katahdin Woods and Waters, but um, there's still uh, some area for concern. That's right. Um, we continue to be concerned uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that while Secretary Zinke clearly had a lovely visit at the property, and I'm thrilled about that, it is a gorgeous place, um, it's not at all clear that whatever recommendation he makes to President Trump, that President Trump will necessarily take his recommendation. And given the governor's ongoing opposition to the monument, um, we're concerned. And so it's important for people to continue to make their voices heard um, uh, about the monument. There's a public comment period that's open until July 10th. There's a second reason that we're concerned, and that is because when Secretary Zinke was here, he was um, talking a lot about potentially doing commercial timber harvesting on the monument, and our perspective on that is that we have about 15 million acres of commercial forest land in Maine that's managed for timber, and we don't think that the National Monument is an appropriate place for 
commercial timber harvesting. So it's important that people raise their voices to both make sure that the monument stays in place and that it's not turned into an industrial forest. Now, you mentioned a public comment period. To whom are comments given? Um, it, the federal government, Secretary Zinke, has, um, is the person who will be reviewing the comments. We hope he'll be reviewing them. And people can uh, go to the official website, which is www.regulations.gov, and look for... That the, sounds like a fun place, I've just got yeah. to say. <laughs> There's a, right at the top of the list on the left-hand side of that page, it'll have something about uh, comments on national monuments, and you can just click on that, and then just put, there'll be a box to say add a comment, and you can just type your comment right in there. It's quite easy to do if the website is working. Um, it frequently has not been working, and so NRCM also has a place on our website that people can go to, nrcm.org, and file a comment there, and then we are forwarding all of those comments on to uh, the federal government so that they will get them all. And when does the public comment period end? It ends July 10th. Okay, great. Thanks for calling in, Kathy. appreciate that. And again, their website at nrcm is nrcm.org. Thanks, Kathy. Uh, Roger wanted to say a little bit more about uh, an awesome experience that he had in the area before we move on to another subject. A couple years ago in the fall, the conditions were just right when the leaves were peak and there was snow on top of Katahdin. And I thought, wow, that's prime time. So I drove all the way up to uh, Lunkasus, put my canoe in, paddled up river four miles, backpacked two miles up into the wood at a foot of Dacey Mountain on the International Appalachian Trail. I got there about dusk, and there was a little bit of snow on the ground, so I set up camp there, and the next morning I got up, went to the top of Dacey Mountain, which is an open summit, has a historic fire tower on it, and got one of the most incredible pictures I've ever captured of Katahdin, and the conditions were just so perfect in that moment, I mean. You only get that once in a lifetime sometimes. Yeah, you're talking about vistas here that people are going to be able to access that unless you really were comfortable with doing some backcountry camping in the past, you probably would never have seen, right? It's true, and there are some places like that you can drive to, and there's some easy walks you can get to. D.C. Mountain, that takes a little more commitment it's in terms of hiking. Yeah. You can do... I haven't done. I've done some day hikes up to that off of the river and back, um, but it's a little more backcountry, and you want to be a little bit sharp that way about your backcountry skills. Yeah, if you don't want to do a, a really long hike, you could do Barnard Mountain, and Barnard Mountain has a fabulous view of Katahdin. And I tell you, when I, when Ryan and I were taking the group up from Sewell House Yoga Retreat, we couldn't believe it. We get to to the outlook, the the summit viewpoint, and there's a picnic table there looking at Katahdin. Wow. And I think I think that was round trip a hike maybe uh, four miles, and it was really easy. Most of it was a logging road. So th- I assume there's lots of canoeing, paddling experiences. What other things besides hiking have you done there? Anybody been out on the water? Swimming. I, th- I threw my whitewater canoe in at Orem Falls back in 1999, paddled my canoe downstream down to Wissatacook when the water levels were up right to the east branch. And it was There's some technical whitewater in it, but there's also some very calm stretches in between, and that was unique for me. Lucas, it, oh, go ahead, It's Don. on my bucket list. Lucas, I think when you were here before, you talked about some paddling opportunities up there. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot. I mean, really... Um, woods and waters, you know, waters is the operative word. There's, um, there's a lot of great paddling. You know, there's a, there's, there's a couple of different multi-day trips that you can take from, 
Route 159 on the where it crosses the Saboas River. You can do a two or three day trip down the Saboas and then connect to the East Branch. Or they could go all the way down the East Branch from the top of the monument to the bottom. And then, of course, the Wasatacook River is is or Wasatacook Stream is just one of my favorite places in the world. It's one of the most remote streams in the state of Maine. It's either in the monument or it's in Baxter. And the substrate of the stream is granite, so it runs in a a really different way. It's much more clear than some of the tannic streams nearby. And it's it's a really magical place. All right, we have time for one last phone call, and then we're going to have to wrap up and, and people tell people where to go to get more information. Katie from Orland has joined us, and I think I know what Katie's going to talk about. <laughs> yes, Welcome, I, Katie. I am. There, there are about uh, 12 of us that are going to be driving up early Thursday morning uh, in three cars, the caravan, to go visit the National Monument and be, you know, with that visit, hopefully be able to write really compelling letters to the Secretary of the Interior. So this is this is an idea that came through the um, Alamusic Progressive. Um, I'm sorry, the Alamusic People's Alliance um, that has is an envir- local environmental group, and the Environmental Action Group came up with this idea, and we're going to go for it. And I understand you've got different levels of some people if they don't want to hike as much, will have a more gentle kind of experience. Other people want to get more activity in, can plug in that way. Is that well, right? Right. We're we're going to do the Southern um, Katahdin Loop road and um, some will climb Barnard uh, Mountain and some will walk up a more leisurely way to Oran Falls and others may just hang out in the campground. Okay, and if people, your, your cars are full, yes, they but are. If, if anybody wants to follow along in their own vehicle, we're, uh, they can do that, meet you in well, the Well, yeah, they, they, yeah it, they could do that. They could get in touch. Um, they could call me tomorrow morning at uh, 469-2122. Um, but again, people could always organize their own adventure. Right, right. All right, well, thanks for calling right. in, Katie. I right, appreciate thank that. Thank you, Amy. All right, bye-bye. And uh, Don Duncan, you had something you wanted to add. I was just up there, like I said, and what struck me, probably more than the beauty of the place, was how many no national park signs I saw. Every It seemed like everybody's yard has a, a bright orange sign, excuse me, with a green dot in the middle and an NP crossed out and it says no NP. And they're all over the place in everybody's yards. There are American flags and then these signs and they're every place. And I just don't understand the opposition. Well, you know, that kind of leads into where, and we only have a couple minutes left, but this leads into a question that I've been wanting to get to, which is, uh, what kinds of businesses, because I think this is going to be what finally changes the tide for anybody who hasn't changed their mind in that area. And I, and I attended a lot of these meetings where people were coming, and there were a lot of people from that area who were in support of there being some kind of national park or national monument. And those folks were saying that they see this as being the opportunity for economic progress in the area. So what kinds of uh, businesses like outfitters or uh, little grocery stores, uh, did you see that there's an opportunity for in the area that you might patronize the next time you're in the area? Roger Merchant. I've heard about, read about, and I've seen some developments like up in the Patton area. Uh, There's been some new ownership with the Mount Chase Lodge. There's been some investments that have been made there. There's other businesses that have been developing there. And my understanding, that's a result of the National Monument being there, 
there has been some uptick, as I've read about it, in terms of participation and people coming there specifically for that reason. For those kinds of small businesses, having a national monument is is a revenue generator in a lot of different ways with guides, outfitters, lodging, whatever. And there's always going to be that opposition that's there. And I think I understand that. It's, it has a deep history in, in forestry and forest products. And letting go of that is not an easy matter, as we know. And I, I spoke to a lot of people on my trip, which just started Saturday. And the feeling I got was that people are genuinely concerned about the land value going up in price, taxes going up, um, their property values going up to where they can't afford to live in the places they live, like Patton and Shin Pond and Stacyville. We've got about three minutes left. Lucas, do you want to jump in and address that at all? We don't have time to take any more calls, but I want to get a, a final comment from Lucas and from Christina as we wrap up. Well, I certainly have seen an uptick in business, and you know, it's everyone from auto body shops, tow trucks, gas stations, grocery stores, lodges, outfitters. Um, it you know, it that things are things are certainly uh, going in the right direction as far as visitation. And you know, I think the thing that we need to be clear about is that this isn't a silver bullet to uh, emerge these these small communities that have been really struggling economically from from where they've been. You know, it's going to take all of the communities coming together and really focusing on a lot of different things. Um, this is certainly a start, and it's been something that a lot of people in the community can be really um, hope, give them hope and, and give them enthusiasm and excitement. But, it, it, you know, it's not going to be the one thing that changes it all. And, you know, it's also not a zero-sum game. It's not like we just have to have tourism instead of the forest products industry. We need high-efficiency sawmills. We need data, um, you know, potentially IT jobs. And, you know, but the one thing that this National Monument does is it raises the quality of life in the Katahdin region. And I hope with that will attract young people and, and this, the, the economic challenges that these communities have been faced will begin to turn around. And I'm pretty confident that this will be able to, the, the monument will be able to do that. Well, thanks for being with us today, Lucas. Real quickly, what's the website again that people can get more information that you recommend? It's friendsofkatahdinwoods.org. It's, it's the friends group that is in support of the, the National Monument. Great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us by phone Absolutely. Today. Thanks for having me it's on. It's Lucas St. Clair. And you get the final word because we've had sort of a go around. So Christina Perkins. Yeah, thanks. I just want to say, you know, um, a lot of bikers are heading up. And there's always studies released that say bike tourism, bike tourism brings money. Um, and so, you know, you, you have flat tire, you need tubes, you need this, you need that, you eat, you buy water, you buy gas, all of that stuff. So I think the potential is there, and it's just going to take a little bit of time. All right. Well, thank you all for being with me today. Again, uh, we had Lucas St. Clair with us, Roger Merchant here in the studio, along with Don Duncan, Christina Perkins, and, uh, well, an, a special guest over there in the corner, Rye. <laughs> and uh, thank you all, um, as well as Kathy Johnson calling in and, and Katie from Orland. And we are going to shift gears now to our next segment, uh, which is about something completely different. Matt Murphy is going to be talking with nonviolent communications trainer Peggy Smith and getting some tips for communicating with people that you have serious disagreements with. How can people with divergent views on politics, culture, and other contentious topics talk with each other? That's our topic of this conversation with Peggy Smith, 
a certified trainer with the International Center for Nonviolent Communications. Welcome to WERU, Peggy. Well, thank you for inviting me, Matt. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, So folks know Peggy um, does an annual fundraiser workshop for WERU, a nonviolent communication uh, workshop that proceeds go to WERU, for which we're very happy. Well, I'm very grateful to WERU because it is the place where I first discovered nonviolent communication, listening to noon dimensions on a Sunday morning when they were interviewing Marshall Rosenberg, the creator of the process. Oh, terrific. I did not know that. Um, Prior to doing nonviolent communication, what were you doing and how did it bring you there? Uh, I got interested in this work as a child. Um, I lived in England for about five years and we took a family vacation to France and my father took us to the American Cemetery for Normandy Beach. I was probably about 11 and I remember it still. It really touched me. Um, I looked at these acres and acres of neatly laid out headstones and it struck me that every one of these was somebody's child. Every one of these beings was somebody's lover or would have been somebody's lover. Every one of these beings was important to a community. So it's not just their death, but all the people who suffered because of this. And I said, there must be another way for humans to resolve their conflicts than violence. And that that was the beginning of my journey. Uh, In I was a normal human being. You know, I went to school. I went to college. I moved to Maine. I was a school teacher for 32 years, uh, always interested in conflict resolution. And when I heard Marshall Rosenberg speaking on New Dimensions, I went, this man thinks exactly like I do. I just never knew I thought that until I heard him say it. (laughs) And uh, he created an incredibly profound process that's actually quite simple. Simple, but profound. So Peggy, what um, are the nonviolent communications principles and how are they put into practice and we'll, in general? And then we'll talk more specifically about the current uh, situation in the country on, uh, on discussion of very difficult topics. Great. The primary principle of nonviolent communication is that all humans, every single human, no matter their gender, their age, their beliefs, where they live on the planet, are motivated by the same desires, values. Um, Marshall Rosenberg called them needs, universal human needs. These are the things that motivate all our behavior. That is the core principle. And that when we disagree with people, it's at the level of strategy um, And when we can get to the level of need, we begin to see that we can um, connect with others, even people we disagree with, because we all share the same universal human needs. The thing is this, Mahatma Gandhi taught us that everyone thinks they're right. So when you enter a conversation of different uh, viewpoints and everyone involved thinks they're, quote, right, unquote, uh, really what I'm trying to do is convince you that I'm right and you're wrong. And if I only say it in just the right way, you'll see that you were wrong. And you'll change your mind. And you'll change your mind. And the reality is that rarely happens because many of our um, held beliefs actually reside in the left hemisphere of the brain. So here we're getting into interpersonal neurobiology, which is um, 
not the same as nonviolent communication, but the more we're learning about how the human brain works when it's in relationship with another human brain, that science is called interpersonal neurobiology and was uh, pioneered by the neuroscientist Daniel Siegel. Uh, We see why nonviolent communication works so well. So what we think we already know the things we already know is the realm of the left hemisphere. And the left hemisphere is all about right and wrong. The right hemisphere is about connection to the body. It's about learning new things. It's about staying open to the moment that exists as to the moment we think exists or we think should exist. Shoulds don't live in the right hemisphere. Shoulds live in the left hemisphere of the brain. And when two or more people who think they're right are trying to convince each other that they're wrong, that's our left hemispheres trying to communicate with each other. It doesn't work too well. Could you talk a little bit about um, his research? How that? How do you know how that? Um, Daniel how Siegel's he, research. Daniel Siegel's research. How how did that? Um, work for people who aren't familiar with with Daniel Siegel, of, of which I'm one of those folks. Okay, well, look him up. Um, I'm just learning neuro interpersonal neurobiology myself, so I don't really um, have a handle on the quote research that I could just rattle off to you. Um, but no, not but, and uh, it involves a lot of looking at the circuitry of the brain and how all these things light up, and it, it's also connected to um, other researchers who look at our circuits of emotions. It, it's complex. See, the thing is this. Humans are very complex. Right. Neurobiology is not an easy topic. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's like we had 15 to 20, uh, 30 minutes, you know. That, it's, it's a show of several hours on its own. Okay. <laughs> um, but, and I want to say that I think that by looking at the processes of nonviolent communication, and then we look at neurobiology, we see why nonviolent communication can be so effective. Because And Marshall Rosenberg developed these processes before interpersonal neurobiology was known and explored. And so did all the wisdom teachers. And um, I don't think Marshall was um, unique. He, he took the wisdom teachings of many centuries, as well as the work of Carl Rogers and the importance of empathy. And then he created a very practical process that it's quite easy to learn. So far, I think the, one of the needs you've t- touched upon is that, uh, I guess maybe you might call it the need to be uh, for expression and the need to be heard. Mm-hmm. And talk a little bit more about that, sure. that need. Well, the other thing I want to say in regards to these kinds of conversations is we have a saying in nonviolent communication, connection before correction. Correction is, again, the the work of the left hemisphere of the brain. Connection is the work of the right hemisphere of the brain. So if we realize that two left hemispheres who disagree are very unlikely to be influenced by each other because we just get more dug in. At least one person uh, will want to be brave enough to step more into the realm of the right hemisphere. And the right hemisphere is the world of the unknown. This is how we create connection with people, by listening as opposed to expressing. 
the connection comes by the, our willingness to deeply listen, not listen from the place of, well, I know you're wrong, but I've been told that if I just listen to you, you'll change your mind. You know, that's not it. It's about really being able and willing to listen from a place of curiosity and wanting to see the humanity in the other person and not to do it in order to change their mind, but in order to create connection with them as a human being, to be able to see them as a human being. This takes a lot of courage because we've been raised in a culture that is really based in right and wrong. And we, most of us went to school where it was, well, you know, we were more safe if we were right than if we were wrong. So we have been encouraged all of our lives to be sure that we're right. It takes a lot of courage to let that go and to listen to someone with deep curiosity to understand what is the universal human need underneath their strategies. So how we act in the world are our strategies. What motivates that action are these universal human needs. So can I be curious about what needs are underneath your strategies, even when I totally disagree with your strategies? This is the realm of brave space. And I I recently read an article by some people who do diversity work at universities. And they used to set group parameters for creating safe space. And then they found that many people didn't like their workshops because to ask people to delve into things that are new, strange, and perhaps life-shaking, it's not safe. It doesn't necessarily feel safe inside of you. I mean, it's not like you're physically unsafe, but it can create some emotional uh, sense of not safe. And they realized that what they wanted to do was set um, guidelines for brave space. And when they did that, people were much more willing to actually go in and do the work of diversity training. How about for folks who um, aren't as motivated? You know, there's some people who uh, have someone in their family or a neighbor or someone that they... um, want to try to make that connection for. How about for people who say, who, who, um, say on all different sides of um, the political and cultural debate um, and uh, we have going on in the country, they're nuts, the other side. You know, they're nuts. I don't think I can talk to them at all. Is there any hope of getting folks like that um, who have that view, uh, maybe not folks like that, but people who um, have um, that in part of their um, – thinking, mm-hmm. is there any hope for getting them involved in a conversation? We, people we've othered. Other, othered yes, we've, okay. We've othered them as being impossible. Yes. And totally closed down. Not that we're closed down, of course, mm-hmm. but we couldn't possibly interact with them the, because, you know, they, they're like that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, a, that's the form of thinking that believes in right and wrong and good and bad. And somehow it's their fault. It's whoever they are. It's their fault that we're in this mess because they're not listening to me or to us, you know, the people who think like me. And this is the spiritual practice of do we truly want to create sustainability on this planet or do we all want to fall over the edge together? I, I mean, I think humanity is at a really big choice point, not only environmentally, but in human relations, 
So that's why I think nonviolent communication, I have such a passion for it. We can create sustainable energy. We can create sustainable food systems. But if we don't create sustainable human relations, how far will these other processes take us? I, you know, it reminds me of Animal Farm. You know, sooner or later, it catches up to us. So um, is it possible? I think the answer is yes. If I am willing to stay curious, to find out what your humanity is, and not to start othering you as a closed-minded person. It's always up to me as the listener. And I don't want to say this, you know, as if it's simple. Many people are really scared. And there's good reason to be scared. And can I be brave as I'm scared? And this is about learning um, the skills um, and opening ourselves up to being able to fill our empathy batteries. You know, I'm a main you know, I've lived in Maine a long time. I can't say I'm a Maine person because that would break certain rules, but I've lived here a long <laughs> time. And I think of empathy as like a car battery. When my empathy battery is full, I'm much more open to others. When my empathy battery is depleted, I'm not so available. Just like, you know, a car has a hard time starting when its battery is low. And most of us, our empathy batteries are in negative charge. <laughs> We're not full at all. We're not even at zero. Because we don't really understand the importance of that, the importance of having people in our lives who will accept us no matter what, who will accept, you know, as we're working through perhaps saying, oh, my neighbor, you know, they're just so blank, blank, blank. They're impossible. I can never talk to them. about, And to have someone that I could say that to and they don't believe me or disbelieve me. They don't join me in my misery. They look for what are my human needs, my universal human needs, what's important to me. You're listening to Maine Currents. This is Matt Murphy interviewing nonviolent communications trainer Peggy Smith here at WERU recently. So let's say uh, my brother or neighbor or a coworker who um, I have some sort of, a, you know, a relationship with um, voted differently. Uh, I voted differently from them. They voted differently from me. Um, they have certain um, issues that are very important to them in a certain perspective, as do I. Walk me through um, how that happens, the nonviolent communication between between the two. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's a moment-to-moment creative dynamic process. So it's not like a formula. This will happen, then that mm-hmm. will happen. I know it would be nice for this show to be able to have a formula <laughs> that I could just roll out. Oh, darn it. I know. But humans just don't act that way. You know, they don't work that way. So first of all, I would want to make sure I get uh, a lot of empathy beforehand for how triggered I might get by something someone would say, or the fact that they may not want to interact with me at all. I also want to say is we can hold curiosity and empathy for people who are not speaking to us or people who are speaking a language we don't understand. Empathy in its more generic usage is I understand you. I'm willing to understand your perspective. And that's not actually how I I hold empathy. Empathy is an energetic accompaniment. I'm willing to warmly accompany you in whatever your truth is. And actually that's what the uh, neurobiologists are call warm accompaniment. 
So am I willing to warmly accompany you? It doesn't mean agree with you. It means, in a sense, be willing to be beside you um, as you express. And if I have someone uh, near and dear to me who might vote differently than me, which I do have in my life, am I willing to genuinely ask, would you tell me what's important to you? Like when I hear you support such and such a position, I'd really like to understand what's really important to you. And instead of listening from a place of agreeing with them or disagreeing, usually when we're listening, we're listening for intellectual understanding, which is, again, the world of the left hemisphere of the brain. And as soon as you start talking, I'm already devising my responses because I'm going to prove to you why you're either right or wrong. As soon as I start thinking about what I'm going to say in response to you, I'm not listening to you anymore. Right. You're, you're not an active listener, I, I think. The, the, is that a term that gets that I hear used um, in different places, being an active listener as opposed to thinking, like you said, thinking about what I'm going to say next? Yeah. So, and I, I, I'm listening, especially in these sort of charged conversations, I want to be an empathic listener. And an empathic listener is really wanting to hear, really wanting to hear. And I don't even have to remember everything you say. I don't need to memorize your points. I want to show you the care and consideration of a human being willing to give you their full attention. This is a novel experience for most of us. And for some of us, it might be really uncomfortable to actually have someone deeply listening to us. But this weekend I was teaching in Brunswick and a, at break a woman was sharing with me that she was part of the um, campaign for uh, marriage equality. And after the first uh, referendum was defeated, um, she was telling me about their process of organizing so that they would go door to door and just talk to people, and but mostly listen to people around this issue. And then the next time the referendum came forward, it passed. They purposely created a grassroots effort to go not to convince people to change their minds, but to listen to people different, deeply, their thoughts, their concerns, and showing people that they mattered. Because this is what we all want. We all want to know we matter. Mm. So I would say that can I approach a family member, a colleague, not with the intention to judge them or to change their mind, but to truly listen for what is the universal human needs underneath their position. And that is not necessarily a quick conversation. It may take many conversations. And then to notice when I'm starting to get agitated or triggered and I can't listen from that centered place anymore and to say, okay, that's enough for today. You know, it's kind of like homeopathic remedy. I can only, t you know, only certain strength is what's helpful. And then a stronger strength may not be helpful. So um, to pace it and to see this as in the long haul, not a quick fix. There are needs that we all have, or um, I guess needs that we all have or many of us uh, share uh, the need and the desire to um, 
you know, to food, shelter, et cetera, but also to, you know, to have our families thrive and, and be safe and thrive, to um, feel like we're making a difference in the world, to uh, feel like we're being productive, however we define that. How do those um, types of needs that aren't necessarily connected to being heard in communications directly anyways, how do those needs factor into um, the ability for people to talk with each other? Well, I think the need to contribute, the need for meaning and purpose, um, the need of well-being, long-term well-being, these are the core of our behavior. And um, seems to me the core of trying to uh, cultivate this capacity to listen to people who we disagree with. Because it's about the long-range goal of a future that's really sustainable. The, you know, if I am uh, wanting and open to listen to a neighbor um, and they may or may not want to do the same, but I'm willing to, to do that. Um, is that, is that okay? It's both, do both people have to be willing to listen or is it just one can be willing to listen, um, initially? It only takes one person to make a difference. And it may be that I need to listen to this neighbor for six months or a year before their heart is opened up enough to be willing to listen to me. It's not, well, if I, if I listen to you for 15 minutes, then you should be willing to listen to me for 30 <laughs> or even five. It doesn't, it's not like that. You know, depending on the person and their life experience and their attachments, then it, am I in this for the long haul? And it would seem uh, to me that the um, activity of listening to someone else is good for me as well. Um, it, you know, very good for me. Mm. It can be. It can sometimes be scary or triggering. It depends on what's being received from mm-hmm. the other. And that, so therefore, I really want to make sure I have some empathy support from someone else if I get triggered by our conversation. But I want to stay in, in connection with you because I realize that we're in this together. In the long haul, we're in this together. Whether we think so or not at the moment. Well, we are. We live in a, you know, on a very, um, you know, the earth is a small place and there's nowhere to send people away from. I think that's another whole piece to this, Matt, is that especially in North America, we um, we live, I'm trying to think how to articulate this with some clarity, but most of us uh, came here through traumatic experience. Our ancestors left their ancestral homes, their ancestral communities, and came. That is a form of trauma. Some of our ancestors got ripped away from their ancestral homes and their families and sent here under extremely brutal conditions. That's trauma. Others who were living here beforehand and who became marginalized and abused by the people who came with stronger weapons, that's trauma. So if you think about it, Uh, North America is filled with people who are in some level or another still immersed or trying to recover from not only their personal trauma, but their ancestral trauma. These things actually get passed down literally in the brain, Um, not just 
because of the behavior of our families, but it's coded in the brain, our ancestral trauma. The beauty of nonviolent communication is that it's being shown as a way to mitigate that trauma. But I'm I'm bringing that up. It's not a total tangent to me. My reactivity to my neighbor who disagrees with me, we think that reactivity is because of what you're thinking and doing. Some of that reactivity is a response to our personal trauma or our ancestral trauma. And we can learn to um, transform that trauma. It's not, I was born with it, therefore I have to live with it. These are other capacities of nonviolent communication and the, and how that interplays with interpersonal neurobiology. We learn how to begin to transform and heal that trauma. And then I'm less reactive. And now I can listen to people with broader viewpoints because I have less trauma to in myself that I'm trying to manage by your behavior. Thank you for this interview. Before we wrap up, I wanted to um, ask you for um, where people can go for information, the neurobiologist you were referring to, if you could give uh, his name again and uh, so people know how to look up his work. Right. Daniel Siegel. If you Google Daniel Siegel or interpersonal neurobiology, um, People will get that. And here in Maine, I've every March I bring a trainer who has studied with Daniel Siegel and who is also a certified nonviolent communication trainer. And we do um, an extended workshop. Uh, so far, we've been doing it at the Hutchinson Center in Belfast. And uh, we'll be doing that again next March. So one way uh, people could have this experience close at hand is to uh, keep looking for that. Where can people go to find out about your work and nonviolent communication? Yeah. So on an international level, they can go to CNVC. That stands for the Center for NonviolentCommunication.org. We have about 500 certified trainers around the planet, and there's amazing work being done in reconciliation uh, in Nepal after this very brutal civil war in Nepal, uh, in all parts of Europe, Africa, Asia, this work is being done all over the world. Uh, here in Maine, uh, I have two, three websites, actually, the mainenvcnetwork.org. Also, in businesses and organizations, uh, I use clarityservices.org. Okay. Well, Peggy Smith, thank you so much for being uh, here on WERU with us. Thank you for inviting me, Matt. It's a great joy. Thank you. And that was Matt Murphy interviewing Peggy Smith, a local nonviolent communications trainer here at WERU recently. And that's Main Currents for this week here at our new time, Tuesdays at 4 to 5 o'clock. Join us here every week for independent local news, views, and culture. I'm your host, Amy Brown. John Greenman engineered today's show. Matt Murphy obviously contributed that last segment. You can reach us at news at weru.org with any suggestions for this program or any story ideas or suggestions for any of our local news and public affairs programs. If they're not for this show, we'll pass them along to the appropriate show. Again, that's news at weru.org. We've got Democracy Now! coming up next, and then Jazz Alchemy, followed by A Southern Wind and Night of Great Music, and then local and er, 
national public affairs programming in the overnight, all here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes